I ask that you open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. Growing up, um, I had heard the Gospel. I had heard lots about Jesus. I knew that Jesus was God. I knew that He was perfect, that He was sinless. I'd known that He had died on the cross and risen from the grave, and that one day He would return again. Because I knew these things, I grew up, and if anyone were to ask and say, Chase, are you a Christian? I would say, absolutely, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus, or I believe in Jesus. And, and I remember even vividly conversations as a high school student Debates that would occur about what the Bible said and didn't say. And, and I remember being on the side of the people who would say they were Christians in those conversations. However, the reality was that I did not truly know Jesus. I knew a lot about Him. At least I thought I did. But I didn't know Him. In fact, I had a fundamental problem with my understanding of who He was or who He is. Even though I had some facts about him, I didn't really understand what that all meant. What did it mean that Jesus is God? What did it mean that he was the sinless one? What did it mean that he died and rose again and that he would come back? Even more so, I didn't understand what those things had to do with my life. What impact at all would that have on me? See, my concept of Jesus was that he was my really my get-out-of-hell-free card. And once I'd accepted him into my life, he would put on the Chase Sears team jersey. He would become my cheerleader, and that all my dreams and my pursuits, because he was on my team, that meant Jesus was always for me. So no matter what was going on, I might pray to God and ask God's favor and whatever things that I was doing. Because that was my concept, all right? You saved me. I've allowed you to come into my life. So now support me in all the things that I'm doing. See, my understanding of Jesus was that he came to establish my little kingdom. I wouldn't have said it that way, but reflecting back, that was equivalent of what I believed. But it wasn't until I was 18 years old that I saw my kingdom begin to crumble and it was at this time that I was truly ready to meet Jesus, the glorious King, the one who I knew some facts about. It was this season in my life that I began to understand that Jesus wasn't joining up with Team Chase. No, I'd better abandon Team Chase and join up with Team Jesus. And so as a result... My life was changed by the gospel. Well, this morning, we're going to come to John chapter 12, which marks the events, as Jamin's already mentioned, of Palm Sunday. That's this Sunday. And it begins, Palm Sunday begins what Christians know as the Passion Week, leading up to the events of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem as the glorious king. However, Israel misunderstands him. 
They have some facts about him correct. They have some idea who he is, but they just don't understand what it means. And they don't understand what it means for them. And as a result, many are going to see Jesus on this Palm Sunday. Many are going to hear about him, but most do not come to know him. It's kind of interesting. They're going to see this one. They're going to hear of the power, but as Isaiah would say, having eyes they did not see and having ears they did not hear. And so this raises a question for us this morning. How does one truly come to meet this glorious king? How does one come to truly know him? And as we look in this text this morning, We're going to see, first of all, that if we want to come to know this king as he's rightly to be known, we must approach Jesus on his terms. We must come to Jesus on his terms. We come to grips with this um, as Jesus really, when we come to know him, he confronts all our expectations. Jesus is going to reorient our goals and aspirations around his. In other words, as I had to come to realize that Jesus is going to tell us it's the end of your kingdom, it's all about my kingdom. And this truth becomes evident as we come in verse 12. Follow along with me as I begin reading these few first verses. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, that is the feast of Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus is entering the town. They hear that he's coming, and so they decide they're going to meet Jesus. They're going to meet him on the road as he enters into Jerusalem. And their idea is, let's bring in some palm branches and let's wave them as he comes in. Palm trees in general in the Old Testament served as a symbol of righteousness. The Old Testament palm branches were associated not with the Passover, but with the Feast of of Tabernacles. However, by the time of Jesus, palm branches had already come uh, kind of a transition in what they meant. They became a national or nationalistic sign of Israel. And this is why in 164 B.C., a man named Judas Maccabeus led a revolt against the pagans who had infiltrated Israel. They had infiltrated even the temple of God. They had set up pagan shrines throughout the temple. And Judas Maccabeus led a revolt, a militant team, by which he came in and slayed the pagan rulers. They came in, and then once they had slayed the pagan rulers, they entered the the temple and they cleansed the temple. As a result, at the end of this, those followers entered the city waving palm branches in celebration. At this point, the palm branch was like the national symbol of Israel. It was a sign of victory. It was a sign of nationalism. It later even became minted on coins, by which Israel currency had palm branches on it. 
And so it becomes quite clear what the Jewish expectation was when they came to meet Jesus. They're thinking we've got one like Judas Maccabeus coming back. And he's going to kick out the Romans. He's going to lead a revolt. He's going to lead a revolution over the Romans. I often wonder, especially as we're now in a new election cycle, this is how Christians would respond if Jesus were here. Why don't you run for office, Jesus? And when we come out to the rallies, we wouldn't come out with palm branches, but we would be serenading him with our American flags. Let's lead a revolution. Chanting, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Expecting a militant leader who's going to kick out the foreigners and put fear in the rest of the world because America's back. It's a lot, that's a lot like what the messages we hear on TV, isn't it? And sometimes we as Christians get caught up just like Israel. Thinking that the mission is about our little kingdom or maybe our nationalistic kingdom. Failing to understand that really the rise and fall of this nation has little to do with the rise and fall of the kingdom of God. But we seem to forget that. But the Jews, and I fear many Christians and those who claim to be evangelicals, here in this text, they, they fail to see the significance of who Jesus is. And they fail to understand the nature of his kingdom in power. Notice, they're chanting Hosanna in the highest. They're saying true things. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a, that's a, 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 a psalm from Psalm 118 that was declaring the Messiah to come. They, they knew that he was the king of Israel. But I want you to see something. Jesus doesn't verbally respond to them, but he, he does respond to what they are doing. And notice how he does so in verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. This is significant. Because a king rolls in on a chariot. A king, in our eyes, would roll in in a tank. Jesus comes on a donkey. Jesus' choice of a donkey invokes imagery. We're, we see a quote here, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And that's from Zechariah chapter 9, where Zechariah is prophesying about the day in which God will destroy the kingdoms of this world, but something peculiar shows up in this passage in that their king is going to come on a donkey. That's usually not what you want your king coming on. You want him coming with power and might and force with an army. Setting people straight. This contrasts sharply with the notions of a political warrior, Messiah. Donkey represented actually peace. Those who would come in on a donkey, that was a sign we're, we're, we're not really at war. We're, we're at peace. The other gospel writers speak of him being gentle and mild in accordance with him coming on this donkey. You might find this interesting. Christians in the early church were mocked as those who worship a donkey. 
fact, in the early um, church in the, I think, third century, there was a statue, a famous statue, which had a picture of a crucified slave on it with a donkey's head. With a man bowing down and had on the inscription, Alexmenos worships his God, mocking Christians. Because donkeys were weak. Donkeys aren't mighty. Donkeys are humble. They are gentle. They are, they're not warriors. This reminds us of what Jesus says to Pilate in John chapter 18. Look over there. Jesus is now before Pilate. He's having a private conversation with him. Chapter 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? There's There's an element, yes. Yes, he is the king of the Jews. Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Notice what Jesus says. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, what would they do? My servants would have been what? Fighting. Bearing arms. Taking over. Coming in on chariots. Coming in on tanks. That I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And so Pilate said to him, so you are a king. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is a king. In Israel, on the surface, they understand that. They've they've seen his wonders. They've seen of his power. They've heard of the things that he's done. He must be the king, but they don't understand that he is not coming to establish their kingdom. He has another agenda. Actually, a far greater battle to be won that we'll see in just a moment. So, brothers and sisters, here's what I want to encourage you. I'm not saying we do not partake in the political process. I plan on voting, and I encourage you to do so as well. But I would encourage you to do so as Christians, not as militants. This isn't about making America what it used to be. That's not our goal. Now, I hope things go well. But our goal is to make disciples of Christ and tell people about a kingdom that is not of this world. And I fear, and I'm really burdened about this, that we have taken off our Christian minds and set them aside and we bought into a mindset just as Israel and that we will do whatever it takes to take back our nation. And we'll set our Christian principles aside. Because we want to lead a revolution. I truly do believe that if we, 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 the way that I see people talking 
and the people, the agendas that they've got going, and the and the the jabs and the way they talk about people who aren't of the same political persuasion or the same social class, and they use terms like thugs. Look at what these thugs are doing. These people have come into our country and they talk like this, and it sounds just like, "Hey, we don't want to reach the world." And people say, "Well, but uh, no, I'm talking about we've got bad people coming to our country." I'm not trying to address that. But you need to understand you're a Christian first. You're not an American first. And that should show up in the way you talk about people, the way you think about people. It should affect the way you vote. It should affect the things that you're fighting for. But it also affects the way you fight. And the Jews thought, we'll fight, we'll take up arms, We'll be like Judas Maccabeus, and we will lead a revolution. And Jesus, we're letting you be on our team. Jesus doesn't want anything to do with that. As Christians, we're citizens of this of Christ's kingdom. And therefore, we're to live as kingdom citizens here on earth. That's why we're aliens and strangers. So this is going to affect our goals. In life, this is going to affect our ambitions. This is going to affect our values, our principles. And yes, we do have a king. And our loyalties are to him. And so this means that our loyalties, our character, our principles are not determined by the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or Fox News or CNN. They do not set the standards and goals and ambitions of the Christian life. Jesus does. And I truly believe that if Jesus were here, it would be very similar to what is happening right now. We want to take back this country for Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm trying to reach the world. You got the wrong mission. Now, if I do that through America and that means prosperity for America, that might be his plan. I have no idea. But that's not the number one goal. I'm not saying that's not a concern, but I'm saying that's not the number one goal. And I fear that somehow we, we think it is. We look at the emblems on our coins that say, God bless America, and we, say, we, we, we assume that's a fact. Well, let me tell you, that's a prayer. That's not something to assume that God is gotten on our team that he wraps himself up like a WWF wrestler wrapped up in an American flag. That's what I think some of us think Jesus is going to be like. That when he comes, he's going to speak English. Now Jesus, as we're going to find out, he's not just the king of Israel, but as the Pharisees are going to say, the whole world's gone after him. Notice here in verse 16, Jesus comes on a donkey, but they don't get it. They don't understand. In fact, the disciples don't even understand. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things, notice, at first. This is going to be crucial for us. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So his disciples, at this point, they don't even get the symbolism of what's happened. The crowd, 
What about them? What was their understanding? Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him, meaning those who had seen him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to bear witness. Now just imagine, they're going around town. Hey, this one is rising people from the dead. They saw rightly what happened. Others, verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So others heard, the guy can raise the dead. And they're thinking, we can leverage this power. Man, if he could raise the dead, your army dies, bring them back up and we'll keep going. So the Pharisees, they're seeing everybody getting excited. Pharisees actually have another plan. If you look in verse 9, they're actually plotting to kill Jesus and Lazarus. Because everybody's getting really excited and they're like, done with you Pharisees. (laughs) This guy can raise the dead. Instead of submitting to them, to Jesus, the Pharisees, verse 10, made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. They wanted to kill Jesus and kill Lazarus. Let's put an end to this revolution. At least that's what they think is going on. And then they say this thing in verse 19. You see, you are gaining nothing, meaning we're not accomplishing anything. The people are getting more and more excited. Look, the whole world has gone after them, and there's a bit of irony here. They're just saying this facetiously. Everybody's coming after him, but the reality is they speak better than they know. Truth is, the whole world is going to come to him. They're exactly right. Israel thought it was all about them. Nationalism, waving their palm branches. We're going to bring Israel back. And we're going to kick out all these foreigners. What we're going to see here about Jesus is that he's not just the king of Israel, but he's the king of the whole world. So to, to meet Jesus... We must first approach him on his terms. But we must also now see him through the lens of the cross. And I want you to see this in verse 20. It's no coincidence that the Pharisees say, look, the whole world has gone after him. And then John picks up in verse 20 and says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Greeks just, you know, Greek speakers, non-Jews, Gentiles. We've been seeing these people in, in the book of Acts. Well, here are some. And notice what they do. They come to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, and ask him, Sir, we wish to, notice the visual here, see Jesus. We want to see him. Well, there's a little bit more to that. They probably want to meet him, right? They probably do see him. They want to meet him. Notice this. this is kind of interesting. Philip went and told Andrew. Why did you go to tell Andrew? What I'm imagining here is Philip's like, "Uh, you want to see Jesus? i got this Greek here. He's wanting to see Jesus. Uh, Wait just a moment. Hey, Andrew, we got a Greek here. He wants to see Jesus. I don't know. I don't know. Let's go tell Jesus. All right, Philip. Jesus, a Greek, wants to come see you. And they think this is a problem. They don't know what to do with these people. Because they're not on the same wavelength. Notice Jesus' response, which at first doesn't look like a response. It looks like he goes on to other things. 
Verse 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Hmm. If you know anything about the book of John, oftentimes this phrase comes up, my hour has not come, Jesus will say. Even when he turned the, the water into wine, Mary says, hey, we need you to do something here. He says, woman, don't you know my hour has not come? And all these stories, he keeps saying, the hour has not come, the hour has not come, the hour has not come. Now these Greeks, non-Jews, come. We want to see Jesus. It's as, as if everything's now complete, and Jesus says, my hour's here. What I'm coming to do is now about to begin. And so in verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Here's what Jesus is doing. He is answering their question. We want to see you, Jesus. We want to see you in your glory. We want to see who you are. We want to see you as the king. And he says, if you really want to see me, you're going to have to see me through the lens of the cross. This is truly, I said to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears fruit. What's he talking about here? He's talking about planting seed. You have some seed. If you don't bury it in the ground, you lay it on your table, it does nothing. It just sits there. It's all by itself. But you plant a seed into the ground, it transforms. It's as if it dies and then it raises into a fruitful plant, hopefully. Well, Jesus' death is going to be like sowing a seed into the ground. It will look like, though, a tragedy. Nobody puts their valuables into the ground expecting them to become something else. But with Jesus, he's going to go into the ground. It's going to look like a tragedy, but in fact, it's going to be triumph. The triumph of God's self-giving love, the love that looks death straight into the face and voluntarily gives itself over to it. That's not how you lead a revolution, guys, is it? That you die? Not only is he going to give himself up for Israel, but he's going to give himself up for the whole world. Now get this. Here's his point. If he doesn't die, if he adopts the method by which Israel is saying, be our king, with militants, fighting, taking up arms, we're going to bring in the kingdom this way, he says it will not bear fruit. It'll be alone. Why is that? Because he's actually coming to defeat the kingdoms of this world. And by joining up with the power and dominion and might of this world, he's actually not coming to accomplish what he's come to do. But instead, he's going to accomplish something greater. He's going to die, and then he's going to raise in glory and splendor. And he goes on and he says, and this is going to affect your life. If you get my power, you get my kingdom, you view me through the lens of the cross, this will impact you. How will that happen? Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. That's not a motto usually we want to live by. 
That's not a motto that will get you elected for president. Hey, guess what, guys? If you love yourself, you lose. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. People be like, that guy, no, we don't want that guy or gal. This is what Jesus says. He says, no, if you see the power and the glory through the cross, that'll actually be the means by which you live your life now. You follow my footsteps. You start following the paradigm of the cross, which is giving yourself up for others, dying for others. He goes on in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And here's the picture. He's talking pre-cross here. Oh, you want to see me? You want to serve me? You You want to be a part of what I'm doing? Follow me. Where's Jesus going? He's going to the cross. Jesus says it elsewhere. If anyone wishes to follow me, he must take up his cross. Daily. But notice, he says, but where I am, there my servant will be also. Where I'm going, you can be there. Follow me. Just like that seed that goes in the ground and comes out, the picture is here is resurrection and glory. And he says, and if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Just as Jesus was honored and glorified and exalted, he says, follow me. And yes, you will, you will die in this world. You'll have to die to yourself. You'll have to die to your sin. You'll turn your back and aligning yourself with the power and wisdom of this world and you will adopt a different paradigm for life. And the world is going to think you are the biggest fool on the planet. That you are like the one who is worshiping the crucified donkey. I'm going to say you are an idiot. But Jesus says this will result in honor by my Father. When he comes and he sends me and I establish my kingdom. Brothers and sisters, this is the message and the promise we're to bring to the world. It's far greater than making America great again, isn't it? Eternal life and a new creation where the real problem of this world is actually dealt with. See, the problem with Israel here and the problem for many of us who think that the goal is to is nationalism, is the problem is is that America is actually against Christ. It is part of the kingdoms of this world which will all fall one day. That have raised themselves up against the knowledge of God. Who have turned their back on the Christ. Who doesn't want Jesus. We want a kingdom like Babylon. We want a kingdom like Babel where we can build our own tower and say, hey, look at us, and we did it without you. But the problem is is that it doesn't address our sin. Sin's the real problem in the world. It's the reason there's poverty. It's the reason there's abortion. It's the reason there's war. Just because we're top dog doesn't mean that we've solved the problem. We might just actually be the problem. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm actually addressing it. This is why it's hard to believe in Jesus, isn't it? His message is tough. 
He confronts us. He says, I'm not joining up on your team. You're joining up on mine. This is why people reject Jesus. I don't, I don't want that. I want him to put on team me. And this is why we struggle even as Christians, isn't it? We forget. Hey, I'm, I'm team Jesus. I'm following. But it's so easy for our hearts to be lured away and be distracted. 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says this about one of his close friends and co-laborers in the gospel. It's a sad commentary. I'd love to preach on it sometime. I'll just read it here. He says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. When I'm pastoring and I'm counseling, the people, well, everybody, I'm, I mean, this including from my own heart, hey, don't let don't fall in love with this present world. Don't fall in love with this present world. Don't fall in love with this present world. And the people that it seems as if the message is getting through, it's because they've, they've fallen in love with this present world. And they would rather adopt the principles, the character, the ambition, the goals of this world rather than Christ. And Jesus says, whoever would save his life in this world will lose it. So we must approach Jesus on His terms. We must see Him through the lens of the cross. But as we're going to close here, we must listen to Him or hear Him through the spoken Word of God. Because I can already imagine some of you are like, "Uh uh-uh, this doesn't sit well with me. I don't like it. Chase, you're anti-American. No, I love America. I can do this. I'm thankful for the grace of God. But don't think for a moment that we're somehow better than our brothers and sisters in Haiti and Syria or Russia or China or North Korea. We're on the same team with the fellow Christians. The people of Israel, they didn't like what they heard either. Jesus says this, verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. Here we see the humanity of Jesus. He knows what's about to happen. He's adopting this. Whoever loves his life loses it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. His soul's troubled over that. There's the humanity of Jesus. But he says, what shall I say? And this is where we should also fight when sin and temptation comes. And we're tempted to save our life, meaning align ourselves, the easy path, adopt the principles, the power, the dominion of this world, give in to sin. We would say, Father, save me from this hour? Jesus says, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That's what we live for. Everything that we do in this world, this life, our goals, our ambitions, whatever your workplace you're in, student, hobbies, we want to say, Father, glorify your name. I'm doing this for your glory, a higher purpose. It's not the ends. It's not, the, it's not everything. But notice what happens. Then a voice came from heaven and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. So Jesus makes this prayer. Father, glorify your name and a voice from heaven comes out. It says, I have glorified it and I will do it again. What's he referring to? This is obviously God speaking. 
He says, I have glorified it. I've glorified it in your life. And he's speaking of the signs and the wonders that Jesus had done. He had turned water into wine. He had healed people. He had healed the lame. He had fed the 5,000. He had given the blind their sight. And he had raised Lazarus from the dead. But there's one more sign yet to happen. He's going to raise himself from the dead. I have glorified my name through you, Jesus, and I am going to do it. But look in verse 29. The crowd that stood there and heard it, so they heard something. But look, the crowd that sat there and heard it said it had thundered. It's incomprehensible. Others, however, said an angel has spoken to him. So it was audible. But they don't recognize it as being the voice of God. Came across this quote from John Calvin, which he applies this to his day, and it's just as applicable to us. He says, It was a monstrous thing that the multitude was obtuse to so plain a miracle. Some were deaf and caught what God had pronounced distinctly only as a confused sound. Others were less dull, but yet distracted greatly from the majesty of the divine voice by pretending that its author was an angel. But the same thing is common today. God speaks plainly enough in the gospel, in which there is also display of power and energy of the Spirit which should shake heaven and earth. But many are as cold toward the teachings as if it came only from a mortal man. And others think God's word to be a barbarous stammering as if it were nothing but thunder. My question today, are you hearing the word of God or is it just wah, 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 wah? Or just saying, ah, it's not the voice of God, it's just Chase's pontificating of his opinions. I'm praying that's not the case. I'm trying to show you verse by verse what's going on here. And Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. God spoke so you would listen. The reason we have the Scriptures is not for Jesus' sake, but it's for ours. So that we would hear, that we would listen. And so Jesus says in verse 31, talking more about His death, now is the judgment of this world. Notice, He has a bigger plan. Who's included in the world in this case? Israel, us, our nations, the other nations of this world, now is the judgment of this world. The world is going to be judged at the cross. Not only that, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Have you ever thought about that? The ruler of this world is Satan. The ruler of this nation is Satan. And Jesus' task is to cast him out. Not just of America, but the world. And he says he'll do this, verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, and notice what will happen, I will draw all people to myself. That's Jesus' mission, to draw all people to himself. But notice verse 33, Jesus is speaking, they've heard the voice from heaven, kind of dismissed it, don't know what it's talking about. Verse 33, Jesus has spoken, And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd answered him and says, But we've heard something different. We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? In other words, no, not our king. 
Our king isn't going to die. No, that's not what we've heard. So he's really not your king because you're not listening to him. He's spoken, but that's not what you've heard. That's not how you understand it. Well, Jesus says, well, that's not my kingdom. doesn't matter what you've heard. It matters what I say, Jesus says. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And the one who walks in darkness, he does not know where he is going, which is all of them, which is the world around us. Why align yourself with the world of darkness? We're sons of light. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Jesus is talking pretty cryptically, but we, we understand, I think, because we're like the disciples, verse 16, who did not understand it first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered these things. They now understand. And what we're getting is John rehashing this event but giving us understanding because we're after the cross. We're after the resurrection. He's been glorified. Our eyes have been opened if we know the Scriptures, if we know the Lord. And Jesus is the light of the world who's come into the darkness, but men hated the light, and loved the darkness because their deeds were evil, Jesus says. What does it look like to walk in the light? 1 John chapter 1, just a reference. 1 John chapter 1. Picks up the very same language, but now this is after Christ. It's kind of the boat we're in. And John says, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, i.e. we've aligned ourselves with the powers of this world, we lie and do not practice the truth. Is that what Jesus said? My kingdom is not of this world. I've come for this purpose, to make known the truth. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here's what it looks like to walk in the light. To love the truth. To listen to the message. To love one another and to obey. Really, the book First John, I'd sum it up right now. Know the truth, love your brother, obey Christ. That's what it looks like to obey, walk in the light. That's because he's our king. So as we go about this Passion Week, Thursday marks the beginning of a fast might be wondering, why that makes no sense. It's adopting the cross paradigm. It's understanding that we see Him through suffering and death. We'll come out on the other side and we'll rely on Him. So I encourage you, if you haven't signed up, do so. You might not understand, come and talk to Jamie, come and talk to me. 
will help you unpack this cross paradigm. But this week, as you think about the things that are going to come across, the commercials you see, the, the commentators you listen to on the news, is this the principles of darkness or is this the principles of light? And I would venture to say you will find the principles of light here. This is where we get our marching orders. And when we do that, when we die to ourselves and show no greater love than this, that one should die for his friends, we'll change the world. We'll address the real problem. You'll start drawing people to yourself. Their hearts will be changed. And they'll put on the team jersey that says Jesus across the chest. Let's pray, and then we're going to get to see Joel put on the team jersey. All right? Let's Dear Lord, I pray that your word has gone forth not as thunder, not as another source, but Lord, that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see what you've said in your scriptures and what that means for us. And so, Lord, I, I pray that even as we sing, that we are, are being drawn to the light. That we would walk in the light. That we'd come to you through the cross and the resurrection. And we'd say we want to follow that path. And that we would live it out in every sphere of our life. And in doing that, Lord, I pray that you would draw many people to Jesus because of us. Because we're magnets, not repellents. And that your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand together as we sing.